This morning, I want to discuss 10 words that the Apostle Paul uses to close out a very powerful letter that he wrote to the Philippian church. We're going to look at really only one verse this morning, Philippians 4, verse 4. And it really culminates the entirety of Paul's letter. He says to the church, to us as well, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And then if you missed it, again, Paul says, I will say, rejoice. Have you ever heard the term Christianese? If you haven't, Christianese is a unique language that Christians use and understand, but is completely lost on maybe anyone outside of of the church. I'll give you a few examples. A phrase like, I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now, as a Christian, you kind of understand what that, what that means. But if you're not a Christian, or you lack some biblical context, you're like, I don't want to be washed in the blood of anything, yet alone a lamb. Or like when we say, the fruit of the Spirit. Again, it, we understand what's being articulated, but that gets lost on the world. How about, how about being born again? Like even in the context by which Jesus first used it, Nicodemus, the guy that heard it, was like, what are you talking about? To be like, do I need to go back into my mom and come back out? And Jesus is like, absolutely not. Born again. Christianese. Or to guard your heart. Or to be an armor bearer. That, that ha- that's loaded language in the, in the church context, but like, wait, we're going to war? Or how about this one? A quiet time. Now, now for moms, everyone understands that. But when you say it in a Christian context, oh, well, I mean a morning devotional. A morning what? Again, Christianese. Or when someone says, hey, brother, you need to get some fire insurance. Well, yeah, I, I have that. No, 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 fire insurance. You know, get right or get left, turn or burn. Wait, what? Or when you ask, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. What? That doesn't make a lot of Or to be unequally yoked. Or to put a stumbling block. Well, that seems mean. My personal favorite is when, is when someone says, man, church this morning was on fire it was on fire did they call the fire department i'm on fire man you should get checked out that's a rash again it's just it's weird language that we use christianese now aside from these phrases it's also true and i think we could agree that most of the the common vernacular used in a church setting also ends up being largely foreign and and a church in and, and a, and a, and a cultural context. Like, on the rarest of occasions, will you hear these words in, like, normal speech? Justification. When was the last time you used justification in, like, normal conversation? Or sanctification? Or propitiation? Or redemption? Or atonement? Now, while the reason may be the length and kind of the religious connotations of these particular terms, there is another word that fits within Christianese and kind of fits within this church dialect that isn't used all that frequently in the world, it's a surprising term. It's the word joy. You know, everyone possesses a deep longing to be happy. But this idea, the notion of there existing an inner joy that transcends an emotional experience, that idea is an alien concept to our world. Like seriously, you'll be hard-pressed. Just 
open your ears a little, how, how little you hear the word joy being used at the water, water cooler at work or in normal speech. In fact, there, there's data that kind of proves my point. Since the early 1800s, the early 1800s, the disappearance of the word joy from our common English lexicon has been gradual but very steady. It's, it's interesting. Have you ever heard of the Google Books Ngram Viewer? It's a website kind of built within Google that's very interesting. Uh, Google has digitalized more than 15 million manuscripts, dating back hundreds of years. And what this has allowed social scientists to do is to create an algorithm that allows you, you can go to the page, you can enter a word, and then you can trace the frequency in which that word has been used in literature throughout time. It's a very interesting website. Now, what makes the Ngram viewer so revolutionary is that the site can act as kind of a cultural seismograph that measures the trends of society following the usage of words. It, when, you, when you use the website, you'll notice that the graph that's yielded looks identical that to an earthquake. There's a tremor, a rise, a peak, a fall, even an aftershock. A dear friend of mine observed that language is culture. It's why there's such a debate about the definition of words and the redefinition of words, the meaning of words. You see, the two, language and culture, are specifically intertwined. Let me give you a few examples of how the Ngram viewer works. And Carolina, you're going to kind of go with me. The first word is internet. So internet. You'll notice, Caroline's going to put up the graphic. Getting there. Still getting there. It says internet. You found it. Yeah. Okay. I, to be fair, as the countdown reached about two minutes... It dawned on me I had not given any of this to Caroline. <laughs> so to be fair, I ran back there with a flash drive, put it in the computer, dumped some files, and said, you and the Holy Spirit are going to have to figure this out. <laughs> so the word internet, as you'll notice, was never used, right? Until it immediately pops onto the scene at the end of the 1970s. It's kind of rarely used into the 90s, and then it just takes off, right? You see how this works. I'll give you another word, atomic. Atomic. The word atomic, understandably, would hit a peak when? Well, during the 60s, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we're, we were concerned about atomic warfare. But then since, you know, it's kind of tapered off after the Cold War. The word millennials <laughs> is non-existent until its first usage around 1996, and now it's become more and more common. Here's, here's one ironic to the website itself, uh, Google. The word Google enters our lexicon in 1998, but it never exists before that. Uh, for some of you, you'll find this interesting. Microbrew um, isn't, in, isn't introduced until 1990. So if you're like, oh, I'm into microbrewing because that's how we used to do it. No, it, no, it isn't. The word was invented in 1990. Uh, and then it's kind of taken a quick rise through the decade. Just three more I found interesting. It has nothing to do with the Bible study. But it does kind of reflect cultural changes happening. Uh, since 2000, the word porn um, has made, it, by the way, in like the early 1800s, it meant something else. Um, but it's now, it means what it means. 
And since 2000, it's kind of taken this meteoric rise in our cultural lexicon. Gay marriage. Interesting. And then, and then here's another slide, transgender. Those two things don't exist at all until the 1990s before making a jump over the next 30 years. That's how quick certain things have been changing within our culture. It's a, it's a cool website. You can check it out. You can search all kinds of things. Um, but out of curiosity, I wanted to see how the word joy has been used since the 1800s. And, he, and here's the graph. Now you'll notice from its peak during the early part of the 19th century, which, on a side note, coincides with the Second Great Awakening, the word joy has experienced a steady decline all the way through 1998. And while the decline has been real, what's fascinating to me is that there has been an unexpected and really kind of perplexing shift from the low to a trend upwards over the last 30 or so years. So there's something about joy that's now reemerging, an idea. So, so why the renewed interest in joy? That's, that, that's the question. Here's a theory. I'm convinced that a culture that has been afforded every license to pursue individual happiness has in turn created a society that's completely empty and longing for something else. Like, th though we've bought into the idea that happiness is kind of the ultimate pursuit of mankind, many have discovered that, that once that pursuit is achieved, there's a, a misery, an emptiness that results. Like, maybe you have thought, if I can just get to this, or get this, or have that, I'll be happy. Let, let's say, <laughs> it's a weight. If I can just get to this weight and get to this beach body, man, I will feel so much better about myself. And then you get there, and there might be a happiness, a euphoria of accomplishing a goal, but it doesn't last. That's why so many people that lose weight gain it all back, or why it develops other weird complexities. Uh, some of the wealthiest people I know are, are also the most miserable. Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller, Standard Oil. At the time, they estimated he was worth about $300 billion then, right? I mean, wealthiest person ever, maybe to King Solomon. And he was asked, he was, he was at the age of 50, had terrible ulcers. Uh, was his doctor was like, you're going to die if you don't make a change. He was only eating bread and drinking milk. And he was asked, how much more do you need? He said, one more dollar. He was never happy. And then he had a life-changing encounter and decided to make it his life's pursuit to try to give everything away. So we have the Rockefeller Foundation and whatnot. He couldn't give it all away. But within our society, we're like, happiness, happiness, happiness. That's the goal. That's the pursuit. And then we get that thing, and it's like, well, I'm <laughs> Like, yeah, I, I enjoyed the boat and the lake for like a year. And then I just got stale. Like, I can't speak to bygone eras, but I, I do feel like I can speak to today's culture. That the more I rub shoulders with secular people, the more evident it is how deeply dissatisfied and, and really miserable people are. Honestly, if you, if you strip away the superficial, many people today that you know, and, and you might fit this category, are, are lonely, depressed, 
And if we're being honest, social distancing and kind of the resulting isolation of the last year hasn't helped the situation. Like for proof of this reality, look no further than to the astounding increase over the last few years in the prescription of antidepressant drugs. According to a recent report posted by the American Psychological Association, 12.7 Americans, uh, 12.7% of Americans aged 12 years and older said they took antidepressants in the last 30 days. That's roughly one in six American adults taking some type of antidepressant. Studies have shown that between 1999 and 2004, there was a 64% increase in people taking antidepressants. To this point, the CDC reported that between 2018 and 2019, so that's before the pandemic, 19.2% of American adults received either some type of mental health treatment with 15.8% of those receiving medication. This shouldn't come as a surprise, but MarketWatch released a report claiming that anti-anxiety medication prescriptions spiked an additional 34% during the coronavirus pandemic. A survey conducted in the UK and published in the United States National Library of Medicine found that the number of people living with depression almost doubled during the pandemic. Like looking beyond just the effects of this past year, we should ask ourselves, why are we seeing this particular trend? And not to get overly philosophical, but I'm of the opinion that the data, the evidence suggests that a culture whereby all things are being presented as truth, true, ends up creating a society whereby in turn, nothing is true. And then life is perceived as being kind of meaningless. You see, the progressive challenge to the traditional norms that we've witnessed over the last 60 years, the pop cultural exhortation to just do whatever you believe will make yourself feel good, a philosophy whereby one's gender and sexuality are no longer based on biological realities but individual whims, coupled with the total removal of an authoritative God, it has fostered this new society that is grappling with deep questions, sincere questions, real questions of meaning and purpose and what is my life about? Like here's the reality. If you examine trends of history, you will discover that anytime a society exchanges absolutes for relative truths, one of three things happens. And we've seen patterns of this throughout history. One, people will become nihilistic and just kind of give up hope which will then yield an apathy that results in like societal chaos. And we see that in some American cities today. Two, if it's not nihilism, people will kind of double down and become very narcissistic, whereby self-consumption trumps the greater good. Like if you track history through its art, you're the most common piece of art in today's world. It's called the selfie. You want to talk about a generation consumed with self. Or there's a third option. People re-engage in a quest to find meaning. Now, now there's no doubt that we see elements of nihilism and narcissism across our society, but I am convinced that the vast majority of people are truly longing for something more than this world is offering. I believe that. 
Meaning, this is kind of the premise for today's study. If that's true, we could very well be at the precipice of possibly another great spiritual awakening. Like it's not an accident that for the first time in 150 years, the word joy is making a resurgence. Uh, One more word, Carolina, be ready. One more word, kind of analysis, that kind of validates this point, okay? If you search the phrase Holy Spirit, from 1800 to 2019, you'll also notice a peak that takes place during the Second Great Awakening of the 30s. But you'll notice an interesting upswing in recent years. Like, I really do believe that the trends that we've seen culturally of the last decade, the abandonment of absolute truth for relativism, which is just yielding narcissism or nihilism or a quest for real meaning, coupled with this increase in the pursuit of, well, what is joy and the Holy Spirit, I do think we could see a powerful move of God in the years to come. Seeing that the word joy is making a comeback for the reasons I've mentioned, I want to acknowledge something right from the beginning. You know, joy, that word. Like, joy is very difficult to define. Like, is joy just an extreme version of being happy? Or does it somehow, like, transcend the emotional? Like, joy is hard to define, right? I think we can agree. If I asked you all to write down a definition of joy, it's unlikely we get the same definition repeated. It's a hard word. Simple, but hard, right? But while it might be hard to define, I have found that joy, true joy, is something we can all see. might be hard to define, but when we see it, we know it. We recognize it. During my years at Bible college, I had the privilege of meeting many wonderful men and women. But none were more memorable to me than a guy named John and his fiancée, Erin. They were high school sweethearts. They both came to Bible college. They had dedicated their lives to the service of Jesus. I knew John because we both worked on the landscaping crew, and he had a Wisconsin accent, which was hard. And he also had a red mullet, which kind of made him an unbelievable, uh, unforgettable individual. I think I've got a picture. Yeah, it's, it's not a great one, but I mean, it is red mullet. <laughs> After college, we lost, we lost touch. Uh, but I did know that he and Aaron had returned home, they started a family, began a life together. I want to fast forward many years to a beautiful spring evening. May 3rd, 2015, it was around 7.30 p.m. John Stoffel and his wife Erin, along with their three young children. At the time, Olivia was 11, Ezra 7, Selah was 5. They were enjoying, again, an evening stroll across the Trestle Trail Bridge, in Minnesota, Wisconsin, I want to set the scene. It was beautiful. The sun was setting on the horizon. The night was calm. The wind strong. The air was crisp. When out of the blue, a 27-year-old man by the name of Sergio del Toro, who had just had a fight with his girlfriend, approached the Stoffel family and indiscriminately opened fire their direction. John, Aaron, and their 11-year-old daughter, Olivia, were immediately struck by the bullets. Though the moments that followed, Aaron suffered two additional gunshot wounds, one in her abdomen, hand, and leg. She proceeded to get the two younger children to safety. 
from her report of the incident, the incident, John's final words, as he's holding Olivia, who's dying in his arms, his final words were directed at the gunman. He said, looking up to him, his last words, he said, may God forgive you. And in that moment, Sergio proceeded to put the gun to his head and take his own life. Now, Aaron had 21 days, grueling days in the hospital. She would survive her wounds. But tragically, John, who was just 33, and their beautiful fifth grade daughter, Olivia, died. They died before the paramedics were ever able to make it. Now, as they made plans for the memorial service, it was decided by the doctors that because of the severity of her own wounds, in order for Aaron to attend, she would have to be taken by ambulance, put in a wheelchair, and taken to the front row. So the service occurs, and to everyone's shock and everyone's dismay, as the worship band was playing John and Olivia's favorite worship song during the service, Aaron rises up out of her wheelchair, and she raises her hands through incredible sobs, and she begins to worship Jesus for his continued goodness. There was not a dry eye in the place. What's joy? Again, joy is hard to define, but it's easy to identify, isn't it? Like joy is what motivates a grieving wife and a grieving mother who's experienced an incredible tragedy, who's herself experienced immense and excruciating pain, who has no idea what her future is going to look like to passionately stand up and worship her God in the midst of her tears. My friend, that, that's joy. And to the world, what that is, that's a mystery. A reaction like Aaron's is unexplainable. And yet, maybe that's the point. You see, joy, joy is supposed to be otherworldly. Joy is supposed to be radical. It's to transcend the normal and the natural. You see, when joy manifests, Everyone who sees it understands that what's happening is bubbling forth from a deeper well than just the physical. Joy. Especially joy in the midst of pain and in the midst of sorrow. Joy shows out as the visible evidence of much deeper spiritual realities. This is why in writing to the Philippians, and for context, Paul is writing to the Philippians from the dark bowels of a Roman jail cell. Paul places such a huge emphasis on our joy. He's writing from jail and Philippians oozes joy and our ability as Christians to rejoice in the Lord regardless of whatever trial or circumstance we might be facing. It's why Paul emphatically declares towards the end. He says, rejoice in the Lord always and again I will say rejoice. There's no doubt that Paul knew from personal experience not just pain, joy, but he also knew the testimony of joy in the midst of pain. In fact, Paul will add in his closing, in verse 22 of this chapter, he, he'll say that all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. You see, in the midst of Paul's imprisonment, 
He had joy. And it was his joy that was making an impact, that was reaching the nobility. Like Aaron, people could see that something was different. People could see his joy. And in light of his suffering that they could also see, people wanted to know how that response was even possible. In his commentary on Philippians, David Guzik makes this provocative, and in many ways kind of challenging observation about joy. He says it's a duty for the Christian to exude joy. Then he adds, a chronic lack of joy is simply a poor witness. And at first, I'll admit, I was kind of taken back by this statement, and yet the more I've chewed on it and considered it, the more I agree. Like, keep in mind, this world, now Satan is the imitator of much, but this world doesn't have a substitute or an imitation for this mysterious thing we call joy. It's not happiness. It's but a shadow. Like, the world can do everything in its power to facilitate euphoria, happiness, gladness, but it can only offer pills to numb pain when life takes an unexpected turn. Friend, here's, here's the challenge of this morning's study. The evidence suggests that our world is depressed and miserable. Moreover, there is a longing, I believe, for something deeper than temporary happiness. And it's those two things that set the stage. Christian, your joy especially joy in the midst of trial, is your greatest witness of Jesus. Here's why. Because the world has literally no alternative. It is an alien concept. With this in mind, when Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord, we need to consider how is it that we come to possess this type of radical alien joy? In the original language, the word rejoice, it's chero, which means to be glad. In a very practical sense, we define joy as the act of demonstrating, uh, we, uh, we define rejoicing as the act of demonstrating joy. Because the word rejoice is a verb that's presented here in the active tense, we also can note that Paul is not making rejoicing uh, he's not presenting it as a suggestion to the Philippians. Rather, he's issuing it kind of as a directive. It basically, you could translate this. My brethren, choose to rejoice. Choose joy. I was talking to my dad yesterday at the ballpark about this morning's study, and, and he said, he says, I define rejoicing as to take joy. And I like that because it is a decision to take joy. Choose something. Now, you, you might find it difficult to be glad or happy in light of the present situation you might be facing. And it might be a challenge for you to be happy in lieu of, of your current situation, your circumstance. And yet neither situations nor circumstances that you face should be able to have any impact on an interior joy. Why? Because where does it come from? Well, Paul says, in the rejoice where? Not in circumstance, not in what I'm facing. Rejoice in the Lord. Like Paul is clear that it is a relationship with Jesus that provides the basis for this very mysterious thing. What's also interesting about the Greek word chero 
is that it's, it's very similar, and it comes from the same family as another Greek word, charis, which we translate into English as grace. In actuality, in addition to this idea of unmerited favor, Strong's uh, defines charis or grace, I love it, Strong's defines it as simply that which affords joy. It's grace that yields joy. Aside from it just being based in a relationship with Jesus, it's joy that manifests from your life from what? This experience of God's grace. The fact that He loves you and He cares for you. No matter what you do or what you've done. That it's immutable. It's, it stands fast. It's clear. It's based on His sacrifices and not yours. It's based on His love and not your goodness. It's not something you can earn and it's not something you can, you can lose. It's God's grace that gives you the basis of joy. God's grace not only changes everything, but because grace yields joy, it subsequently changes the way we experience everything. Again, this is why Paul says to rejoice in the Lord. The reality of Jesus, the sacrifice he made at Calvary to save you from your sins when you didn't deserve it, should be more than enough. That no matter what you're facing, you can have joy. You can rejoice. You can allow joy to exude from your life. Again, Aaron could stand and worship. Why? Her relationship in Jesus and that understanding of his grace and his love. You see, God's grace establishes a much deeper an unwavering basis for joy and rejoicing. This present life afforded you to you by Jesus should place all earthly trial and struggle and difficulties, all trying circumstances, all of these things into a context. You see, no temporal hardship, and that's what whatever it is you're going through is, it's temporary. None of this has the power to rob you or Paul or Aaron of an eternal perspective and as a result of joy. Let me add a caveat, like for a little clarity. This seems simple, but, but I have to say it. Like Paul isn't here commanding you to always be happy. Like it's true that joy can yield happiness. But the reality is that this thing that we refer to as joy, it transcends the emotional. It springs forth from the spiritual. Think of it this way. While we obviously understand joy to be a state of being, to be glad, as opposed to being an emotion, feeling glad, or an action, doing things to be glad, where does joy originate? Yes, it's based in a relationship with Jesus, and it's founded on God's grace, but is joy something that just kind of magically occur occurs? Is it an epiphany? Is joy a personality trait, a decision of the will, something we choose? See, I don't believe that joy originates in any of these ways. Like consider that if joy is the manifest, manifestation of grace, and grace is a gift given through Jesus that we receive, meaning you can't manufacture it, then it's only logical that for you to have joy, it has to be a gift that's given and received by God. You know, the reality is that joy is much more than an emotion, and here's why. It's the direct manifestation of, of the Holy Spirit's work in you. I'll give you a few examples to validate this. Galatians 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit, or what's produced in your life from the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. 
Romans 15, verse 13. Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy. It's a gift, a filling, and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. And you became followers of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 13, verse 52, Luke says of the disciples in Pergia, following Paul's departure, that they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You see, scripturally speaking, joy and the Holy Spirit come hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin, which means that joy is something, yes, alien to the world, and it's completely intrinsic to Christianity, which is why joy is such a powerful witness as to the working of God in someone's life, it can only come by the Holy Spirit. You know, it's ironic. You ever been to Urban Dictionary? Sometimes it's fun, sometimes it's gross. But if you go to Urban Dictionary and you enter in, well, what, what is the wor- how does the world define joy? It presents two definitions, Urban Dictionary. One, it's either the name of a woman, <laughs> or two, this is crazy, It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's how Urban Dictionary defines joy. Now, before I take this this idea any further, I, I do want to explain why it's so dangerous when we allow joy to be relegated to only the emotional plane. If joy, as a fruit of the Spirit, ends up being nothing more than just an emotional happiness, then subsequently emotions, real emotions like sadness and sorrow and depression, become interpreted as being now a spiritual problem. Aside from the fact that this convolution hyper-spiritualizes emotions that it shouldn't, most tragically when it happens, church life becomes completely superficial. Instead of people coming to church and being honest and real about the things they're emotionally dealing with, people end up doing this. They put on their happy-go-lucky Jesus face out of fear of being perceived as what? Less spiritual. I'll prove that you're probably guilty of this approach. Here's a simple question. Like, when was the last time you showed up to church, someone comes up and they said, How you doing, brother? And your response was, I'm glad you asked. Truthfully, my life absolutely stinks right now. And I'm really depressed about it, and I'd love to tell you how miserable I am. I don't think I'm going out on a limb when I say, you've probably never really done that at church. Now, I get it. I I do. I get it. It's easier to just say, right, I'm good, man. You know, just hide it all. Or or even worse, to say, bro, I'm blessed. (laughs) And why? Because you don't. You don't want to unload on someone who's just trying to be friendly. I'll say on the flip side that if if you're not really interested in hearing how someone's doing, don't ask them how they're doing. Just say, hello. Hi. There's a lot of other words. Greetings. Greetings. Don't want anything else. Hi. Not interested. Glad you're here. For being forthcoming, one of the reasons that we often shy away from being really transparent with one another 
It's the fact that, yeah, you don't want to unload, that's true, but sometimes you don't want your emotional struggle, like what you're going through, the questions you're asking, the doubt you're facing, to be judged as being a spiritual problem. And it's that misunderstanding that, that creates a climate whereby it's just safer to be fake than real. Now, never forget that the fruit of the Spirit is joy and not emotional merriment. You know how quickly forget, we forget that the Bible says that there is an appropriate time to weep and to mourn? That you can have joy and sorrow. How quickly we forget that good, godly people can and do struggle with depression and mental health. You know, it's only natural that sometimes you just, you wake up on the wrong side of the bed. And you just kind of enter your day in a bit of a funk. And you don't know why, you can't articulate it. You're just not feeling great. You know, David, a man after God's own heart, was often troubled and in deep despair, his own words. Elijah was discouraged and weary. Job suffered incredible loss and found himself paralyzed in his devastation. Moses was gripped with bouts of inadequacy and heartache. Jeremiah struggled with loneliness and insecurity. And Isaiah 53, verse 3, even Jesus our Lord was described as being, quote, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You know, the happy-go-lucky Jesus face, if you actually knew Jesus, wouldn't be what you think it was. Like this week, just for fun, for giggles, just do a, a, like a Bible search. Go to Blue Letter Bible and do a search of like downcast or brokenhearted or troubled or miserable or despairing, mourning. Those words are all over the Bible. Hopelessness and emotional struggles are all over Scripture and not once are they ever presented as being emblematic of a spiritual problem? And yet, this is what's so amazing about joy. Transcending these emotional states. Since joy isn't based on the circumstantial or the emotional, and because it instead flows from God's grace and His Spirit, you can still possess the joy of the Lord, even when you're feeling down and depressed. Yet in closing, it needs to be said, that it is simply inconsistent. And for that matter, a poor witness for a person who's experienced God's grace, for a person filled with the Holy Spirit, to be a deeply miserable and constantly sour person. It is totally contradictory. Because joy manifests in your life through a working of God's Spirit, yielded by His grace, a grace afforded by Jesus, a lack of joy is often an indicator of one of two things. One of two things. Either you've never experienced God's grace and never been filled with His Spirit, or you've somehow lost sight of His grace and are failing in your pain to rely on His Spirit. You know, if the latter describes you and you find yourself here this morning, like many people, trapped, you find yourself in this just brutal cycle of, of pursuing happiness only to discover emptiness, to pursue a new happiness only to discover another emptiness. If it's just this brutal cycle you're on and you find yourself more depressed than happy, more down than up, if you're thinking there just has to be something more to this life, 
There has to be a better solution than medication to numb the pain I feel. (laughs) I want you to know that there absolutely is. Friend, God's grace, again, not only changes everything, but it's the indwelling of His Holy Spirit that transforms how you then experience everything. Jesus never promised a life where you'd be happy. Never promised. But he did promise a life filled with joy. An internal spiritual reality that transcends whatever I'm facing or whatever I'm feeling. And never forget, it's impossible to have the joy of the Lord apart from a relationship with the Lord of the joy. And if, let's say, you happen this morning to be a, a, a miserable Christian, shame on you. But I must ask, friend, is not the incredible grace that God has already demonstrated towards you and that while you were still a sinner, Christ died to save you from your sin, to give you a life so that you're not miserable? Is, is it not enough that, aside from even that, God would fill you with His Spirit to provide you love and peace and joy? Is that not enough, those realities, to stir you up from your sorrow? To help you rise through your despair, to move out of your pain and grief and even depression to, to your feet? To rejoice? To worship? Soon after the memorial service had come and gone, once Erin had returned home, started to settle into kind of a a new normal with her children, she wrote the following on her Facebook page. She begins with a challenging quote from Elizabeth Elliot. God will see to it that we are in circumstances best designed by his sovereign love to give us opportunities to bear fruit for him. (laughs) That's a heavy heavy idea so she writes she says hard one to swallow sometimes when you're in the thick of it going through the fire feeling like you're drowning in life's circumstances there were days upon days that I felt all I had was a heart's cry it was just trying to keep doing the next thing yet Jesus promises to carry you through And his promises are true. She ends with this exhortation. She says, allow Jesus to shine through your brokenness. Even through the deep pain you may be experiencing, you will experience the most amazing closeness. Because hopefully, it will draw you nearer to Jesus. You're not alone. God be glorified. Christian, rejoice and the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So Father, Lord, we know that that's only possible through your Spirit. So fill us anew, fill us afresh.